Good evening, church. If you will turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, at verse 14. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 14, and I will read down to 16. And if you are able, please rise for the reading of God's word. The title of today's sermon is Who We Are. Who We Are. It reads, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preaching among the nations, and believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Let us uh, bow our heads in prayer. Lord, I, I love that song, Lord, how you love us, how you love us so. Lord, I just desire so much that those who do not know you will know how much you love them. And I just pray, Father, for all the believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, that we can just continually remind ourselves how you love us. Lord, guide my thoughts, guide my heart, guide my mouth. I'm asking you, Lord, to carry me through this because you know with all my heart, my soul, and my mind, I want to preach your word with boldness, with confidence, with thankfulness, because I know how much you love us so. I just pray, Father, that those who hear this word, Lord, that it will penetrate their hearts, Father. I pray, Father, that it will penetrate their hearts so much that our brothers and sisters will be reminded of how much you love us. And I pray, Father, that it will provoke them to love and to serve. I pray, Father, that those who do not know you, Lord, I pray, Father, that you will open up their hearts just like you did with Lydia and Acts in the book of Acts. That they will know how you love them so. Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for your servants. The Apostle Paul, your servant Timothy, we thank you so much for this letter. And I just pray, Father, I just pray so much that we will not lose sight of it. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in your Son, Jesus Christ's name, and all the God's people say, Amen. You may be seated. Recently, I was uh, reading an article 
And I just want to share you, a, a, I guess, a, a, a piece of it. The title of the article is Church Revitalization, Revitalization. and it is by uh, William Hurd. He goes on to say that a key issue in helping a church recognize its needs for revitalization revitalization, is helping the church discover its identity. Just like our identity in Christ is essential to walking in victory in Christ, so is a church identity. It involves both a painful and positive evaluation. The painful part of the church, the church identity is found asking three questions. Who do we think that we are? Who does the community think we are? Who are we really? In most cases, a church will declare that they are a loving and friendly church. What they mean is that they are loving and friendly to people in their group. Oftentimes, the church thinks that it has a strong reputation in the community But in reality, the community rejects the church because they know, excuse me, they know all of the gore details of the church fights and splits. Thus, it must be led to the church of having those honest moments about who they are in reality. In reality, this reality check, however, can now guide the church to create some positive steps to get the church back on track. Identity can mean different things to different people. It might be about who you hang out with, what music you listen to, where you live, or what culture you are. Simply put, your identity is who you are. The start of the article made me think. Who are we really? Then a question popped in my head. Have you ever had a good conversation about the identity of God's church? Conversations with Christian friends, family, Maybe the pastor. Have we had a good conversation about the identity of God's church? And I just want to make this clear. This is not individually. I'm talking about as a church, as a whole. The universal church. You see, identity is important. Because having an identity can give you a sense of belonging, which is important for your well-being. You see, as I studied the letter of 1 Timothy, I noticed that the church of Ephesus had had an identity crisis. Or I should say, or I, or I should say, identity theft. You see, as believers in Christ, there's an enemy prowling around like a lion to steal your identity in Christ. Well, what does it mean to prowl around? It is to move about and wander stealthily in search of prey. The enemy uses this technique. He uses this technique on certain individuals in the congregation. 
The enemy is stealthy. And he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He is in enemy territory. But in order to draw certain individuals out of the church, he implants thoughts to seep into your mind. Let me share a few of them with you. The enemy will say, why are you here? You're not good enough to be at church. Or you can't change. That's just how you are. And lastly, you're not qualified. You'll never be accepted. Those thoughts slowly erode in your mind, causing you to be bitter and angry. You start to nitpick at everything and everyone in the church. You stop serving. You no longer attend small groups. And the love you once had for your brothers and sisters grows cold. You slowly begin to distance yourself from others. And then before you know it, you're gone. That's how the enemy works. He steals your identity away so he can lure you away from the fellowship of God. And so tonight we're going to examine the nature of the church. We will learn about three truths that tell us who we are as a church. And what the church must do to prevent identity theft. So the central idea of this passage is that the church is God's household. And it is to live by the gospel. The church is God's household, and it is to live by the gospel. So if you will look with me in verse 14. It says, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. I'm going to pause right there for a minute. You see, when Paul says, I write these things, you see, Paul introduces the purpose of the letter and the general reason for his concern. You see, Paul detects a key problem with the church at Ephesus. Then, excuse me, and the problem is identity theft. The church no longer lived according to the gospel. Paul was able to pinpoint the problem quickly since he had, excuse me, since he had planted the church in Ephesus and he served there for three years. And in those three years, Paul had taught and ordered a group of leaders to serve the church after leaving. And during his departure, false teachers arose, just as he predicted in Acts chapter 20, 29 and 30. Now, we don't know much about the false teachers. We know written that certain persons in the church swayed from the truth and taught different doctrines. We also don't know precisely who they were and what they were teaching. But it is enough to see that they contradict the, the, the gospel. Church, after Paul's release from his first Roman imprisonment, he returned to Ephesus to see the full extent of the situation. And it was awful. The lives of the church were no longer characterized by the gospel. Their identity has been stolen. And as a result, the church lost its gospel motivation by no longer praying for the unsaved. The poor no longer being ministered. There were decisive men in the church, men 
unwilling to lead, period. There were, there were men to, who refused to, to lead in, in just op, in, in opening prayer. Or they were praying in the church while, while fighting with one another. Women in the church dressed immodestly to draw men's attention to their physical beauty. The type of clothing they wore falls short of the biblical idea of modesty and self-control. Women in the church undercut godly doctrine and godly leadership. And although we don't, we don't have all the details, some things are very clear in chapter 2 of this epistle. You see, church, the church at Ephesus was no longer the lighthouse of light in the dark sea of pagan worship. Instead, the church had been modeling the pagan world. All of it took place because false teaching robbed the church of its identity in Christ. Paul's in this, he turns, he sees this awful state in the church. So Paul knew that corrections had to be made. Church discipline needed to be executed. Upon Paul's return to Ephesus, he dealt with two distinguished, uh, distinguished false teachers in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 20. And soon after, he left Timothy to deal with the remaining false teachers and set the church in order to set the church in order while he departed to Macedonia. Not long, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. Although Paul was hoping to come to Timothy more quickly, however, he would be unable to go than he had initially wished. And so he wrote this letter to strengthen Timothy in leading the church back to the true identity in Christ. As Paul writes in verse 15, but if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of the foundation of truth. It is here that Paul gave Timothy three identities in this text. The first is God's household. The second is the church of the living God. And third, a pillar and foundation of truth. So let's go through them one at a time. The first being God's household. The first truth we learn in verse 15 is that the church is God's household. Now, the word household is not a building, but a family. Not a building, but a family. We are the family of God. The concept of family does different things to all of us. For instance, some of us have great experiences with families. While some of us here only know abuse. So since we are the family of God, what makes the family of God so great? What makes it so great? Well, the family of God transcends all other realities of the family, because coming to Jesus means that we are born into a brand new family. It is a family that grows 
not through natural birth, but in birth, but but is born through the gospel. What makes the family of God so unique in our uh, excuse me? What makes the family of God so unique or so great is our love for each other, for our love for each other. You see, in John chapter thirteen thirty four, Jesus taught, "I give you a new command: love one another, just as I have loved you, and you and you are also to love one another." Jesus added in verse 35, and by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, if you love one another. So how do we do this? What does it mean to love one another? The one another in these verses is a reference to believers. The distinguishing mark of being a follower of Christ is a sincere love for brothers and sisters. You see, the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verses 21, the one who loves God must also love his brothers and sisters. You see, giving this command, Jesus did something the world had never seen. Jesus created a group identified by one thing, love. It is by love. This command makes a household, of, a household of God unique. It's not about skin color. Native language doesn't matter. There are no rules about uniforms or diet. It's not about your political views. We are, we are the family of God. And the family of God is identified by our love for each other. You see, for a Christian to try to survive outside the church is an act of detaching himself from the family of God. You see, God created us for relationships. And we are to have a relationship with him, but we are also to have a relationship with the members of the church. We are commanded to meet with one another, uh, to meet uh, other believers so that we as a church can be strengthened. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 down to 25, it reads, Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. That's what we're to do. To provoke love and good works. Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. All the more as you see the day approaching. Verse 24, let us consider one another. It is here that the writer of Hebrews tells us that each member of the church is to fall in love with each other. I know it sounds strange, but that's what we're called to do. It means that your walk with Jesus becomes as important to me as my walk with Jesus. Whatever is troubling you, then I am troubled. When you are rejoicing, then I am rejoicing. When you struggle with a particular sin, then I struggle. You see, in in Jesus' church, in Jesus' church, we have bonds that are tighter than blood because Jesus' blood holds us together. Anything outside of that will collapse. Biological families, 
nuclear families, extended families, cannot sustain themselves without the blood of Jesus to hold them together. You see, in the book of Acts, the early church showed the type of love Jesus was talking about. There were people in Jerusalem who who were saved, who got together, who were saved, who got together, and instantly began meeting each other's needs. In Acts chapter 2, 44 and 45, it reads that all the believers were together and held things and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and properties and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. This was love in action among brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what makes the family of God so great. As being a family of God, there's another aspect to it. Since we are the family of God, we are to operate under God's rules and direction. So once again, as Paul wrote, and the reason for this letter, I, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. How they are to conduct themselves in God's household. Let me bring some earthly family dynamics in relation to God's rules and directions. My household includes my wife and my two daughters. My family operates according to my rules and directions, according to God's commandments, to God's commandments. And let me just say this, it's not a dictatorship. But rules and directions, there are rules and directions in regarding our family's devotion, our tithes and church attendance. There are rules and directions concerning our finances and education. There are rules and directions about home safety, such as locking the doors and windows closed to prevent intruders from entering. There are rules and there are rules when it comes to my daughters regarding the bedtime, TV time, etc. I teach my children rules about crossing the street. And you got to look both ways before you cross. And there are rules and directions regarding their behavior and how they respond to me and to others and how they treat their mother. There are rules and directions there. Excuse me. The rules and, and directions are in place because I love my family. I care about my family. I desire my two daughters to live long and fulfilling lives. And it's the same way with God. God desires that people and family live together in peace and harmony, that we love each other. I appreciate the rules and directions of that of God. Because I know that ultimately God is the one that gives eternal life. But while we're living on the earth, these rules and direction also helps sustain our earthly lives is here as well. You see, let me share with you real fast. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Self-control. And I think self-control, at least in my opinion, is, is, a, is a huge thing in, in today's society. You know, there was a, a police officer who put a gun to my face. And let me tell you about the situation first. So at the time, it was uh, myself and, and two other of my friends. And I was visiting from Lancaster, California, over here in Apple Valley. And I uh, was staying at, uh, at one of my friends' homes. And so me and my friends, we had went out to the mall, and then we uh, came back, and my friend had forgotten the key in the home. Well, his grandparents were not there, so we were all just sitting out outside, and it was hot. It was, it was probably like 110 uh, out that day because it was very hot. And uh, my friend, Chris, um, that's his home, he's like, hey, I, I think I know where the spare key is at or, or located. But he doesn't know exactly sure or where, or where it is at or located. And so we went in the back. And I just sat down because it was, uh, it was shaded in the backyard. And so all the while, uh, Chris, and I believe that his name was Shane, was going around uh, trying to find this, uh, this spare key. And then I remember Chris said, hey, Thomas, can you get up and look over there? And then uh, I was just like, okay. So I get up, and all of a sudden, I see a shadow. And all of a sudden, you see this uh, female police officer, and she had a gun pointed right at me. And so I just stood there, and I, and I didn't do anything until she told me what to do. And so she told me to put my hands up. I put my hands up. And then she began to question me, do, to do her investigation. And each time that she was uh, questioning me, I just simply gave her a reply, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. While, while my hands are up. And then all of a sudden, she just lowers her gun, puts it back in the holster, and then proceeded to question. Self-control. Because I think a lot of times in today's society, especially because of my color of skin, and, it's, and if a police officer put their gun on me, then all of a sudden it gives me the license to act like a fool as my grandmother would say. See, at that moment, I understood what she was probably thinking, why she had her gun drawn out. Is one, she's hearing voices, that are, that are, that she's responding to her call, she's by herself, and all of a sudden she hears voices in the, back, in the backyard. So she comes around, she she's pretty much could be in, 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 in a state of fear. Or her life might be threatened at that particular moment. She's a police officer. They see the ugly side in society. And so as I was complying to her instruction and her command, and I had my hands up, and I was addressing her, you know, just saying, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. It's just like I just demonstrated self-control. I demonstrated gentleness. I was letting her know that I'm not the aggressor here. And as I responded to her, she, she got the sense, like, hey, this guy's not a threat. And she proceeded to put her gun away. You see, self-control is, is, is so vital, and I think we're missing it out in t- today's society. 
Because I think there's a lot of unnecessary things that occur. One small thing escalated to something even greater where it didn't need to go there. So all I just simply said, just obeyed the commands and simply, you know, gave her the respect that she that she that she so deserved. And regardless, if she didn't deserve the respect, God tells me I still need to give her that respect. But then it it de-escalated. No one got shot. All she did was she she uh, she understood the situation. She just took down her names and she went on about her way. And then the grandparents came came back home like 10 or 15 minutes afterwards and we were good to go. Nobody didn't have to go be carted off to jail. And once again, nobody didn't have to be shot. But that's the glory. And when it comes to God's commandments, to his rules and, the, uh, 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 and, and his direction, it sustains life. I want that for my daughter. You see, I love my, I love my daughters. I love, I love my wife. But I don't want them to be all of a sudden acting like a fool and then something happened where it didn't need to happen. And thank the Lord that he has given me my grandmother for, for, you know, for instilling that to me and my brother. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. You know, a lot of people recognize that. It's like, you're from the South? I'm just like, no, my grandmother was from the South. She was from Alabama. You see, God's rules and directions help us to live together in peace and in harmony, but also to love one another in the family of God. And it doesn't have to stop there at the family of God, but for those outside the church. How we conduct ourselves inside and outside, and we must keep this in mind, will help us to create opportunities to share the gospel. And what I mean by inside the church, just remember that there are visitors that are coming. There are visitors that perhaps don't even know God. So how we conduct ourselves in the household of God will, will affect those who do not know Christ. So the first truth of our identity as a church is that we are the family of God. And our love for each other identifies us in Christ. The second truth, the church of the living God, the church of the living God. The second truth is that we are the church of the living God. The identification of the creator as a living God has a deep Old Testament heritage. The church of the living God is something similar to God's orders to Moses concerning the tabernacle. In Exodus 25.8, it reads, They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. And the same thing was also said to uh, was said about the temple built by Solomon in first Kings chapter six, verse 13. I will dwell among the Israelites and not abandon my people, Israel. In the Old Testament. God chose to dwell in specific locations. But in the New Testament, a change took place. God now lives among his people. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will dwell 
and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer does God dwell in temples and tabernacles. Instead, he dwells among us and walks among us. Let me share with you another verse. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 22, it reads that in him you are also being built together for God's dwelling place in the Spirit. Did you catch that? We are the dwelling place for the living God. We are the dwelling place for the living God. The church, the family of God, is a place where God lives and dwells. We are his house, worshiping in his presence, listening to his word, partaking in communion at his table. We are an assembly of believers in the church of the living God. The description of the Ephesian church as the church of the living God was appropriate because it was the lighthouse of light in a sea, in a dark sea of pagan worship. You see, the church at Ephesus have been given the responsibility of spreading the God news and living according to God's word in a pagan environment. But the Ephesians allowed themselves to be sidetracked by false teachings and divided by arguments, which resulted in the lighthouse unable to produce light. And when the light no longer is shining, then we should be able to I mean, we should ask ourselves this question. Does God still dwell among us? As believers, as the family of God, we should constantly look inside to see if the light still shines. Because if it doesn't shine in the church, then no light is shining outside the church. The second truth of our identity is that the church, the family of God, is the place where God lives and dwells. The third and final truth of our identity as a church, a pillar and foundation of the truth. Paul gave a picture of the, of the truth of our identity. It is a picture of a pillar and foundation that would have been easily able to uh, be pictured by the Ephesians at the time. There's a reason why Paul gives this picture. You see, at the time, the temple of the goddess Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was located in the city, in the city of Ephesus. It had a massive, shiny marble wolf with, 20, with 127 strong pillars, each measuring over 18 meters high. All were made of marble, and some were, uh, were covered with jewels and draped with gold. Each pillar acted as a tribute to the king who offered it. And each pillar functioned to hold up the mass, the massive structure of the roof to be seen and admired from a distance. Now I must say this. The Apostle Paul is, is not advocating the kind of worship that went on in the temple or comparing its 
um, objectives with the purpose God has given to the church. Paul uses this building to illustrate his point. You see, the rock-solid image should characterize the church's guardianship of the truth of, of God's word. Just as the pillars serve to hold up the massive roof, so the church pillars, so the church pillars holds up the display of the truth of the gospel for it to be seen and appreciated from a distance. As the foundation and pillars of the Temple of Diana were a witness to pagan false religion, so the church is to be a witness to God's truth. We are the protector of God's word. The church does not invent the truth and modifies it. Instead, we support the gospel and protect it. It is the most prized possession on earth because sinners are forgiven through the gospel. For believers, it is it is for the sanctification and edification that we might live according to the gospel. So how do we protect the gospel? Well, we protect it by believing in it, studying it, obeying it, proclaiming it, fighting for it, and living by it. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says this, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We are to fight the good fight. This doesn't mean violently, but we are to simply defend the gospel. The third truth of our identity is that we are, the, we are protectors of God's word. We are the protectors of God's word. Now, coming to verse 16. After Paul giving us these three powerful truths regarding the church identity, Paul moves to talk about the supremacy of Christ Jesus. Paul wrote, and most certainly the, the, the mystery of godliness is great. Let us examine the word godly, god, god, godliness. To have godliness is Christ-centered is Christ-centered mindfulness that penetrates everything that we do, whether we're awake or asleep, whether we're dreaming or desiring or thinking, even when we're talking, eating, or drinking, whatever we do has godliness centered around God. So really just in a nutshell. It is a correct response to the things of God, which generates obedience and righteous living. Generates obedience and righteous living. But what is the mystery of godliness? The mystery of godliness has everything to do with Christ Jesus. You see, it refers to the things of God that were once, that were once hidden, but were later revealed through, through Jesus and the coming of that of the Holy Spirit. The phrase, the, the mystery of godliness, is, is really a part of the introduction of that of an ancient hymn. So when we read it, it says that he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and, ta and taken up to, in glory. This 
was a mystery that can only be known through the revelation of God. Let me give you a couple of scripture references. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says, The mystery, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In Romans chapter 16, verse 25 and 26, it reads, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, the the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. You see, the mystery of godliness is used, used to be hidden from you and me, but it, is now, but it is now revealed. Verse 16 reminds us of these fundamentals, the fundamental truth, these fundamental truths God has revealed to his church. So going back to this ancient hymn, where it says that he was manifested in the flesh, it means this. That the Son of God became a real human being, and he was like us in every way except for our sin. Jesus was vindicated in the Spirit. This could be referring to Jesus' resurrection or the way the Holy Spirit came upon him during, the, uh, during his uh, earthly ministry. But the point being is that the true spirituality is a pattern by Christ. Jesus was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. The angels were at the empty tomb, telling the disciples that Jesus was no longer there because he had been, but he has been raised from the dead. The good news is spread because of Christ's resurrection. Jesus preached among the nations and believed in the world. This actually reminds me that of Matthew on the account of the Great Commission. In Matthew 25, starting at verse 16, it reads that it reads, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee and to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in earth, I mean, in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. To the end of the age. This mystery is no longer a mystery anymore. It has been revealed. It has been revealed to us. So going back to the title of my sermon, going back to the the question I asked. Who are we? Who are we? Well, we learned about three, three identities concerning who we are. The first truth we learned that we are the family of God and we are to love each other. 
You see, the family of God encompasses a vast body of believers who strive together to grow closer to God. We are the family of God that seeks to that seeks the best for one another and encourage each other and forgive each other. There's no reason to be angered. There's no reason to be bitter. There's no reason to be at odds with other brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to be identified by one thing, love. Love. Remember that the gospel is love. And most importantly, God is love. The second truth of who we are is that, <clears throat> is that the church, we as a family of God, this is, this is the place where God lives and dwells. Where God lives and dwells. You see, as God dwells in us, then we are no longer citizens of the world, but apart from it. We understand that we are a part of a heavenly, God-ruled kingdom. And the things on earth no longer draws, draws us. We do not place importance the, concerning world values. God dwells within us. Because when he's dwelling in you, you begin to see the transformation, the sanctification process, the process of changing. I can go back to 1996 to where I received Christ and I'm no longer that that young man at the age of 19 I'm not the same but I see the sanctification when it comes to God I have learned about self control uh, self control which I'm still learning <laughs> But I'm more better than what I was back in my younger days. I learned about gentleness. When before, when I was a teenager, before I even came to Christ, I just wanted to bully people. To be unkind. And Steve can testify to that. <laughs> Because he was the main one I would bully. <laughs> but I'm no longer that person. And, and Steve is, is a witness to that. The sanctification, the sanctification process that God dwells, dwells in us. But not just individually. But in the church. I see lives changing. I see transformation that has taken place. I mean, what, what has been like eight weeks in a row that we have baptisms? That is the work of God. That tells me that God dwells among this place. That we, that the lighthouse here at this church is producing. And it's shining inside the church and outside the church. And that is a wonderful thing to see. It's, you want to see the, I mean, there's other examples of when it comes to that of the living God. When you begin to see people who are actually serving within the congregation or who are, who, are, who are loving one another. I love the fact that everyone is getting up and greeting and how everyone on Sunday morning is excited to get here and shaking people's hands. And it's just like you see the love that is being demonstrated here. You see the love when you begin to see the, the pastors who work hard 
to, to, to minister the word, to hear the preaching of God's, God's word, but applying it to, 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 to the lives of, of the people here. I'm so happy and grateful that the simple fact that, hey, when it comes to church discipline, it is not by name only. We actually practice it. When it comes to church membership, we actually practice it. Why? Because we know that God dwells in his house. But also going back to the first truth is because we love each other. The third truth of who we are as the family of God, that we are the protectors of God's word. You see, from generation to generation, we have a responsibility. From generation to generation, there always has been a responsibility to pass on the gospel message. And we are to continue that. We are to defend it against any false teachings that would jeopardize it. And like the pillars that Paul described that lift up, that lift high the truth of the gospel message, we as a church need to continue to be those pillars, to continue to lift it up high. The uh, 127 pillars at that temple of, of Diana. Just to hold up that massive structure. But we also have a, 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 a structure that is greater than that. Once again, that is the living God. To hold him up. We want the truth of the gospel to shine so the world will see and hear it. You see, church, our identity in Christ should be recognized both to ourselves and to others. Do not allow the enemy to steal that identity. God is love. God is love. He has given us scriptures to uphold, to let it penetrate the very souls of our lives so it penetrates those who are outside. But if we're constantly fighting and bickering and arguing and and doing all these other things just like the world, What makes you think that the world is going to want to come to this church? What makes us any different from them? We are characterized, or I say we are, we are identified by love. So with that said, let's go to our Lord God in prayer. Lord, I just want to thank you so much for these truths, Lord. I think it's so funny because it seems like each church is trying to have some type of uh, characterization when it comes to uh, the identity of their individual church. And, and to me, it, I think that we're really missing the point. 
or basically missing who you identify, uh, who you call us to identify with, and that is by love. I know it's not too flashy, it's not catchy. It's really just the basic fundamentals of when it comes to love. And so I just pray, Father, that we will love each other with the love that you have shown us, that you have demonstrated to us. Lord, I'll be the first to say that I struggle with it each and every day. I struggle to to love my wife. I struggle to love my children. I struggle to love others. And so that's why I, I know that I need to be more close closely to, to, to the fellowship of the church to provoke me to love, to provoke me to good works. And I am so thankful, Lord, that I am in a body where love actually exists and it takes place. And I, so, I, and I, just, I just ask, Father, that, that each and every one of us and as a church on a whole, as a whole, that we be honest with ourselves. Who are we? Who do we identify ourselves with? I don't want to be identified with pagan worship. I want to be identified by your love, by the gospel truth. So, Lord, I just ask you, Father, to strengthen us. And thank you so much, Lord, for this family. And I just pray, Father, that those who, who do not have a family, there is a family in your household. And it's really not that difficult to be a part of the family. It just requires you to believe in Jesus Christ, that he died and rose on the third day, that you repent and turn away from your sins. And that you follow Christ wholeheartedly. It's not that hard. Jesus never made it that hard or complicated. But I pray, Father, that people will continue to see the lighthouse of your church. And that they will be drawn to it. And that they will be saved. Because I love them. And I want them to have eternal life. Just as you have given us eternal life. We thank you, Lord. And we bless you. And we pray this in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen.